Hi guys, I'm Marie. Welcome back in 2024. Hopefully everybody had a really good holiday with their friends and family and got to enjoy some nice relaxing time. Today I am bringing you the case of Carrie Swenson, which I actually heard about Carrie Swenson a couple of years ago. And I decided to look into it. It's pretty crazy. In 1984, 22-year-old Carrie Swenson would go running on a mountain trail in Yellowstone National Park, where she would disappear. Carrie grew up with her parents, Bob and Janet, and her two siblings. She had a sister, Joanna, and a brother named Paul. The family moved to Bozeman, Montana, when Carrie was just eight years old. And she spent her childhood outdoors, hiking, fishing, skiing, camping, and enjoying the wilderness. Her mom, Janet, was a nurse who also volunteered for the search and rescue ski patrol. And one of Carrie's favorite pastimes was riding her horse, Nutmeg. As a teenager, she got really into skiing and would be drawn to the biathlon, Carrie, at the time of her disappearance, was one of America's top competitors in biathlon, which is a sport that combines cross-country skiing and target shooting. And I'm going to be honest, I did not know this was a sport. And this sport dates back to the Nordic military exercises in the 18th century. It's very impressive, I'm not going to lie. I watched some of her videos. Carrie had won a medal in the World Biathlon in France and was one of only a few females or even Americans in the sport. She had recently graduated from Montana State University and was busy training for the upcoming season. She had taken a summer job at the Lone Mountain Ranch in Big Sky, Montana, where she would live on the grounds and work while training six days a week. She also enjoyed spending her spare time in the barns where she met a rancher named Alan Goldstein who tended to the horses. On June 10 of 1984, so this same time frame that Carrie is working at the ranch and training, a man named Don and his son Dan donned their packs and guns and readied themselves to head into the wilderness. The father and son had been living in the mountains for some time and had decided that it was time to find a woman. They would be described as dirty and greasy, but this didn't seem to bother them. And on July 14, the Nichols made their way to Eulery's Lake, where they saw a woman floating on an inner tube, fishing in the lake. Dawn called to her, do you know what day of the week and the date? It's Saturday, July 14, she responded. Dan was carving on a nearby tree. Dan and Don Nichols live in these mountains, July 14, 1984. Don called to the woman, why don't you come over here where there's lots of fish? I'm doing fine, was her response, but just the same, she floated closer to the pair. You must have been in the mountains for quite a while to not know the date. 
Dawn walked closer to her. Yeah, we've been out here a long time. A male voice then called, Joel, where are you? And at this point, the woman realized that she had floated far from her husband and friends on the other side of the lake and paddled back in their direction. July 15, the next day, around 5.30 a.m., Carrie was preparing to serve breakfast at Lone Mountain Ranch. She had the split shift and was to serve breakfast and then dinner at 6 p.m. She had plans to go for a run on one of the mountain trails that afternoon. She was warned to be careful if she was going running alone as there had been a grizzly spotted nearby the day before. It was about 1.30 p.m. when she cut the sleeves and neckband from a blue t-shirt and she wore this with her red running shorts and tied a red bandana around her head. Carrie had long auburn hair that she was known to wear in an exacting part and today was no exception. She filled a plastic water bottle while deciding what trail to run and she settled on Eulery's Lake. She got into her car and waved to some friends as she pulled away from the ranch. It would be about 2.30 when Carrie parked her car at the trailhead parking lot. She locked her car, stretched, and headed out toward the lower lake. Once reaching it, she headed uphill toward the upper lake. And as she neared the lake, she saw a man on the right shore and headed left to avoid him. And she assumed it was just somebody fishing. It was 3 p.m. when Dan Nichols was fishing at the lake and he saw a woman running in red shorts on the other side. He went to his father and said there was a hell of a pretty girl coming around the lake and to get ready. Now, around 6 p.m., after Carrie failed to show up for her shift at work, the alarm was immediately raised. Her brother Paul would grab a radio and head straight to Eulery's Lake Trailhead, where he found her car sitting alone and empty in the parking lot. Paul would run along the trail calling her name, and he also radioed for help, and others would join in right away. But there was not much daylight left to aid them. Bob and Janet, Carrie's parents, were called and told that Carrie was missing and that her car had been found at the trailhead. Bob called his pilot friend to meet him at the hangar, and her mom called a friend to come and meet her, and they would drive to the trailhead. At this point, everybody's thinking that Carrie might be out there injured because she would not miss her shift for work. So they're thinking maybe she twisted an ankle or something like that, and they just need to find her. The airplane flew over the area, trying in vain to spot a speck of what could be Carrie stranded below, but they would be forced to return to the hangar without a sighting of her. Jan arrived at the trailhead at 8 p.m., and she would see the plane that held her husband swoop along the tree line, and she waited for it to tip its wings as a sign that they had spotted Carrie, but the plane made no such indication. She would be notified as well that Madison County would not be conducting a night search and it would be up to them, meaning the family and volunteers, to look for Carrie until dawn. Even though Jan said she had been a part of night searches, not far from here. I'm guessing that would be very frustrating. As Jan scoured around the lake, she ran into a man with two dogs and she asked him if he had seen her daughter. 
He said that he had not, but that he had seen some men fishing on the other side of the lake around 4.30. Jan said that this was the first time she had considered that her daughter may have come to harm at the hands of a human. Because remember, she's probably just injured and they're going to find her right away, get her to the hospital, and everything's going to be fine. They searched for footprints, and Jan described the sole of Carrie's New Balance tennis shoes that she believed her daughter was wearing. They found no matching tracks, though. One person found a set of Nike tracks going up around the lake but not coming back down, and Jan called the ranch and had someone double-check that Carrie's New Balance shoes were missing, and they were. So it is assumed that these Nike footprints are not hers. But this is a popular trail, so it's not crazy that there would be lots of footprints around it. Jan would go to Carrie's car, and she found it locked. She looked through the window and saw Carrie's K2 baseball cap looped on the gear shift and Carrie's junior national medal hanging from the rearview mirror. There was a plastic water bottle on the seat and a pair of cross-country ski poles. Jan would put her head against the cold car window and sob. She felt helpless and, I am sure, cursing the cruel irony of all the years that she spent finding other people and now is out there looking for her own daughter. What she didn't see in the car was Carrie's fanny pack, which had a whistle, a first aid kit, and long underwear in it. This gave her mom comfort that at least Carrie had something warm and a first aid kit. Carrie's brother Paul would also join in the search. And at one point, he came across another searcher, and he saw that he was bent down holding somebody in his arms. He ran over only to discover that it was just the searcher's backpack and not his sister at all, and he was just seeing what he wanted to see. By 10 p.m., darkness consumed the area, but Jan refused to give up searching, and her and other volunteers would continue on. They also posted someone to sleep at Carrie's car in case she turned back up. At 12.40 a.m., Jan finally returned to the ranch with the intention of borrowing a truck and heading back out to spend the night flashing the lights and honking the horn so that Carrie would know she wasn't alone. But she was persuaded to wait until morning and try to get some sleep. She went to Carrie's room where she found the cut-off sleeves of her shirt and she put one in her pocket so that she had a sample of what Carrie was wearing. She also confirmed that Carrie's red running shorts were gone. There was a sweater carelessly thrown on the ground, and as Jan picked it up, she stared frozen in horror. Carrie's New Balance shoes and her fanny pack were on the ground beneath it. So the tracks they were looking for all night were wrong. And not only that, but Carrie no longer had warm clothes or a first aid kit. That would be so distressing. At 3 a.m., when Jan walked into the dining hall, the local search and rescue coordinator, Bob Newart, was there. Hi, he said. Come help us sort out the maps. Do you know which trails were searched? His casual demeanor confused her until she learned that he had no idea that the missing woman was her daughter. 
Brad Pearson and his German shepherds, Bear and Skip, were there and other volunteers were filtering in. They were paired into groups of two and each group was given a map and a radio. The kitchen made sack lunches for everyone and the dogs headed out with everyone else to follow in half an hour. So give the dogs a chance to get in there and look for Carrie's scent before all of the searchers contaminate the area, would be my guess. At 5.30 a.m., Carrie's parents were back at the trailhead. They found Carrie's spare key in a magnetic box under her car, and her dad unlocked the car and removed her baseball cap. He put it on, saying that he would wear it for good luck. Jan would team up with Bob Donovan, and they would head to the boggy shore of the lake looking for clues. Jan would say in her book, The lily pad choked surface sent tingles up and down my spine, and the odor of rotting vegetation and stagnant water made her think of death. By now, I was thinking that someone could have murdered Carrie and concealed her body. And as these thoughts plagued her mind, she would actually yell no out loud and then had to tell her searching partner that she was talking to herself. Carrie's brother Paul would be paired with a volunteer and family friend named Steve, and they headed to the North Fork Ridge and would eventually drop into the east side of the Beehive Basin. Carrie's dad had actually suggested that they keep Paul out of the search, but his mom said that nothing would keep him out of the woods until Carrie was found. Searching the Jack Creek Trail would be Brad and Bear. The dog would actually alert to something and start running up the slope, 300 yards up the slope, they would find a bone slick with blood, and Brad thought it might be a forearm. He tried not to throw up and really no longer wanted to search, but he would continue on. He wondered if maybe a grizzly had gotten Carrie. They put the bone in a bag to take it to the vet in town. Jan said that she felt guilty with her coat on, as Carrie had no such protection. As she hiked through the dense woods searching, the radio would crackle, saying there were reports of some cows found that had been shot. That's concerning. Jan had been switching off from whistling to calling her daughter's name every 30 steps. As Jan prepared to blow Carrie's whistle again, another call crackled over the radio. We heard a shot. Did anyone hear it? It was Steve and Paul on the radio, but nobody else confirmed hearing the shot. 30 minutes passed and another voice yelled from the radio. There's some crazies out here with a gun. They're shooting at us. Jan grabbed her radio. Base, base, this is Jan. What's happening? I don't know. Someone's shooting, came the reply. Jan started running and screaming Carrie's name and her search partner struggled to keep up with her. He had actually injured his ankle and was not doing well by this point. The next thing to come over the radio was this. Listen carefully and do not, I repeat, do not answer or give your location. All searchers return to base immediately. Searchers in section 7 and 12 be careful. There's someone out there with guns. Repeat, all searchers return to base immediately. 
be careful, stay off the horizon. There are some real dangerous people out there. There will be radio silence from now on. Radio silence, all units. That would be terrifying. So back at base, one of the searchers, Jim Schwab, who had been searching with Alan Goldstein, had returned and was shouting in a panic. There are two guys. They had Carrie chained to a log and shot her when she yelled for us to stay away. Is she alive? He was asked. She was when I left. The son of a bitch shot her and the old man shot Al in the head. So Jim and Alan, 30-year-old Jim Schwab was a landscaper from Wisconsin and 36-year-old Alan Goldstein was the rancher who worked with Carrie. It was around 7.30 a.m. when they stumbled into the Nicholas's camp and Carrie is chained to a fallen tree and she starts screaming for them to get away because she's already been told by the Nichols that if anybody finds them, they're going to kill them. Now, things escalate and Carrie ends up being shot and Al ends up getting shot. And at this point, Jim darts into the woods and runs for his life. The Nichols actually panic and they flee, leaving Carrie behind, bleeding on the ground. The gunshot had struck just below her collarbone and exited by her shoulder blade, puncturing one of her lungs. She would leave bleeding and struggling to breathe. Also, flies and ants were swarming around her wound. So everyone's been called back to base camp including the only witness that knows where Carrie is. But it would not be so simple because there are two men with guns shooting and the only witness fled for his life from that area. So finding Carrie again would prove to be difficult and dangerous. Carrie's mom actually was advised to not go down the normal trail. And they actually had to go down a back trail and then hitchhike back to the trailhead because they were in one of the sections where they would have to go through the area that the camp was. So they're advised to go another route down. It would be four hours before help would reach Carrie. It was 11.55 a.m. when the helicopter finally spotted her. Carrie is airlifted out of there, and while hanging from the helicopter, her stretcher hit a tree, and she almost flung back to the ground. Like, can you imagine? You've been laying on the ground, bleeding and dying for four hours, and then as you're being airlifted out, your basket literally hits a tree. When Carrie arrives at the hospital, her family is already there. Her mother said that her lips were blue and her freckles were stark against her ashen face. Her left cheek and upper lip were swollen and bruised, and a drop of blood oozed from a cut on her lip. 
but doctors are able to stabilize her. She asked about the searcher that had been shot and said that she tried to crawl to him, but he was too far away and she feared that he was dead, which, yes, Al did not make it. When rescuers got there, he was dead. Carrie would tell her story to police. She said that around 3 p.m. the previous day, she was running on the trail. She looked up and saw two men staring at her. She said they were dirty and unsmiling, and she knew right away that she was in trouble. The younger man had his hand on a pistol, and the older of the two stood partially blocking the trail. As she tried to run past them, the older one stopped in front of her, and he would grab her by the wrist. Please let me go, she said. No, 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 we don't run into pretty girls up here very often. We'd like to talk to you. What's your name? Sue, she lied. Are you married? Yes. What's your husband's name? Bill, which she said was the first name that popped into her head. Where's your wedding ring? I, uh, I work in a kitchen where I'm around machinery all the time, so I don't wear my ring. It might get caught in something. They didn't really believe her and said that all women lie. She started to yell for them to let her go, and the older one said, we've been looking for companionship up here. We'll take you along for a few days and see how you like it. He asked the younger one, should we keep her? To which he replied, yes. He told him to bring the rope, and this is when Carrie really started to scream and struggle, and she was struck on the left side of her face by the older of the two men. They then struggled, and she was drugged to the ground and put in a chokehold and tied up. She tried to bite him but was unable to reach with the man's arm around her neck. The older one told her that he had never beat up a woman, but that he would if she didn't stop struggling and screaming. She continued to beg them to let her go. She tried pleading with the younger man, but according to Carrie, he said, I want to keep you. They drug her into the woods, and she was tethered to the younger man while the older one followed behind, pointing a gun at her back. She tried to make mental notes of the terrain in case she had a chance to escape. She dropped her wristwatch and her headband, trying to leave breadcrumbs. But her captors would catch on and both items would be retrieved. She tried to make shoe prints as drastic as she could, without being obvious. By 5 p.m., they actually stopped to set up camp, which really surprised Carrie as she thought they would want to get as far away as they could before sundown. It would still be another hour before anyone even realized that Carrie was missing. She was chained to a tree while they made camp and dinner, and the mosquitoes and flies would bite at her. She asked them if they had any clothes that she could wear, because remember, she's in a tank top and shorts. The older one said that he had stashed some of his ex-wife's clothes on the other side of the mountain. And he also said, Wait till you see the neat underground caves we live in, Sue. We have hideouts there where we won't never be found. We can live up here forever without going into civilization. 
Now, while at camp, they could hear people calling for Carrie, and they could also hear a plane overhead, likely the one that her father is in. But they would stay under the cover of the trees, and they would not be discovered. At 10 p.m., Carrie could still hear her name being called, and she knew that people were looking for her past midnight. By morning, she was covered in bug bites, sore all over, and so cold that her teeth were chattering. As the men woke up, they started to make breakfast, and Dan used his gun to kill a squirrel. I'm assuming that this is the first gunshot that is reported over the radio, and also probably what led Al and Jim straight to their camp. I feel like this just goes to show how confident or stupid these two are. Carrie heard a rustling and saw a man crouched outside the camp. Don grabbed his rifle and pointed it at the man. This the girl you're looking for? Yes, that's her, he replied. Carrie started shouting to stay back and to run for help, that they would shoot him. Don told Dan to shut Carrie up. And this is when things escalated. Dan walked over to Carrie and he shot her in the chest. But then he immediately started yelling, I didn't mean to shoot her. Carrie said that she could hear a sound that sounded like someone sucking on a peach and realized that it was coming from her chest. Dan yelled for the man to come and help her and would continue to say that he didn't mean to shoot Carrie. Don would yell, no, no, stay out, and he told Dan to shut up. So Dan is yelling at the searcher to help Carrie, and Don is yelling at the man to stay out, and they're both holding guns. The man, whose name is Jim, he would drop his pack and run to Carrie. He saw that she was chained to the tree and yelled for them to get the chain off while he tried to see her wounds. At this point, another man stepped into view, and Carrie realized that there were two searchers. Jim would yell over his shoulder, Al, call for help, get help. Don would swivel the gun towards Al, and Jim jumped up in an attempt to stop him. He swiveled back towards Jim, and he raised his hand saying, everybody's cool, nobody's going to get hurt, put your gun down. Al moved, catching Don's eye, and It's believed that he might have been reaching for his radio, which was found next to him on the ground, but he also had a gun on him, so I'm not sure which one he might have been reaching for. But either way, Don swivels back and he shoots Al in the head. And as Don is reloading, Jim ducks into the woods and runs. Carrie said that the whole thing lasted about 90 seconds. They started to pack up. So now we have a searcher on the run. We have two people shot. And the Nichols start to panic. They start packing up. They unchain Carrie and they dump her out of the sleeping bag that she is in. She begged them to leave it for her. And John said, you won't be needing it. He also said that they are never going to take them alive as they left the camp leaving Carrie bleeding on the ground. 
As Carrie lay there, she could hear the crackling of Al's radio, but she couldn't get to it. She was able to drag herself a little ways to the backpack that had been dropped by Jim, and inside the backpack was a sleeping bag, a candy bar, and lemonade. She climbed into the sleeping bag the best she could, took a bite of the candy bar, and drank some lemonade. She also tried calling to Al, but he didn't answer. She could hear the chopper flying overhead and would begin sobbing when the noise receded. So I don't, I can't even imagine what she's thinking at this point. Initially, she's probably thinking, they're going to come back for me. But after the hours go on, I, I can't even imagine. Carrie said that she really couldn't breathe very deeply and just tried to focus on slowing her breathing down and taking shallow breaths. Doctors would say that her controlling her breathing the way that she did had likely saved her life and slowed her heart rate, decelerating the hemorrhage. After Carrie tells her story to police, she also gives a description of the two men. She said that the older one was about six foot tall with stooped shoulders and bushy dark hair and beard, which were both peppered with gray. She said he also twisted the ends of his mustache. His face was weathered, leathery, and lined, and his eyes were cold and shifty. She said the younger of the two was a little taller than her and walked stooped like an old man. His eyes were an unusual color, maybe green or light brown. He had freckles across his nose and cheeks. His face was long and he had a sharp nose and blonde hair. Police would bring Carrie a photo lineup because the girl in the inner tube had already told police about the two men at the lake the day before and said that they had been carving their names into a tree. Super smart. She also said that she felt like they were trying to lure her to the shore. You're probably right about that. So Carrie's abductors would be identified as 53-year-old Don Nichols and his son, 18-year-old Dan Nichols. They were self-proclaimed mountain men who had been hiding out in the mountains for some time, surviving on squirrel meat and poached livestock. It was also said that they survived with caches of red beans and other supplies that the pair had stolen from hunters' cabins. But at this point, police have no idea where they are, and they know that they are armed and dangerous. This would put the whole area on alert. And for months, while Carrie recovered in the hospital, the manhunt would be underway. I can't imagine sitting in the hospital recovering from this atrocious injury, knowing that they were still out there. Nightmare. It would be Thursday, December 13, before the Nichols were captured. And they were surprisingly captured without incident. A rancher named Roland Moore had left his ranch on horseback in order to check the water supply for his cows. And while out there, he saw a plume of smoke 
rising through the trees on his property. He thought it could be poachers or maybe even the nickels. Because remember, everyone's on alert. He would call the sheriff's office and they would be approached by one sheriff on a snowmobile and still there was no incident. It was believed by some that they were cold and hungry and tired of hiding out. I mean, possible. During the trial, Don would say that he dreamed of starting his own tribe in the mountains, but he did not think that he could get a woman to go willingly. So he had bought a chain five years before kidnapping Carrie with the intent of securing a suitable woman. Gross. The news coverage on this case was disgusting. One reporter said it was almost romantic that they had kidnapped Carrie for a wife. Like, what the fuck? There were also reports like, some people were delighted at the ease with which the fugitives eluded capture. Some rowdy mountain men trying to snag a wife. Old Don and Dan as harmless throwbacks to an earlier, less tamed era in the West. Nice men born 100 years too late. Like what in the actual hell? None of that. None of that is real. No. During the trial, people actually asked them for their autographs. I can't. Either way, Don Nichols is convicted of elaborate homicide, kidnapping, and assault. He is sentenced to 85 years. Dan is convicted of kidnapping and assault, and he was sentenced to 20 years and six months. And in 2012, Dan would be released from prison, but he would be rearrested on drug charges. Carrie would write an article for the Montana Pioneer condemning the moniker Mountain Men. She said, the Nichols lived in the mountains part-time, but they did not survive there, at least not without poaching, breaking into cabins, and stealing supplies, leaving the mountains for months at a time, and purchasing modern equipment. Ultimately, they are caught without a fight because they were cold, hungry, and tired of living in the mountains. These are not mountain men. I agree. I totally agree. Carrie rarely spoke to media and really tried to stay out of the public eye during the entire circus. But she was determined to get back to her training and started pushing herself regardless of the constant pain that she still felt. She would go on to the 1986 biathlon in Norway. She would come in fourth place by a fraction of a second. And as the medals were handed out, the third place winner would pull Carrie onto the podium with her, causing the spectators to erupt in applause. Carrie would officially retire in 1996. And in September of that year, she began her studies to become a veterinarian. Her true disgust for the rendering of her story would be revealed in her mother's 1989 book called Victims, the Carrie Swenson story that her and Carrie wrote together. Such a good book. I read it. It's good. It gives a story from everybody's perspective. It's written very well. 
And in the prologue, it says, Carrie still has nightmares, flashbacks, and emotional and physical pain associated with the kidnapping and shooting. Unlike television violence, real-life trauma does not end with a fade-out and a commercial. Their book is dedicated to Alan Goldstein, Jim Schwab, and Bob Shep. I think Alan losing his life while trying to save Carrie would be a hard a hard thing to wrestle with for sure. I actually heard an interview with Alan's daughter who said that she had been mad at her dad for not wishing her a happy birthday and then she found out that he had a good reason. But such an amazing survival story. Uh, I hope that Carrie Swenson is doing well with whatever she puts her mind to in life. And I hope that uh, Dawn never gets out of prison. I know that Dan has already been released, but yeah, it's, no, I can't even imagine. You're just out there minding your own business and these two men decide to destroy people's lives. It's just awful. So that is the story of Carrie Swenson. Thank you so much for tuning in. While we're here, I have been slacking off on my Patreon mentions. I am so sorry. So bear with me for a second. We have DWP. Hi, welcome to Patreon. We have Alexander Shiver. Hi, Alexander. We have Carrie McGinty. Hi, Carrie. We have Allison. We have Lily. We have Ashley Kid. We have Kelly Garrett. Hi, guys. We have Megan McCree, Mandy M, Zoe Scantos, Paul Rhetoric, Anki Kalaya. Anki, Anki, Anki? I don't know. Cool name though. And we have Mo Drake. Thank you. Thank you everyone for supporting us on Patreon. You guys are amazing. I appreciate everybody's support on these episodes that I've been doing by myself because Maddie is still settling into her new job. So thank you everyone so much for your support. Um, if you want to support us, come over to Patreon. We have lots of bonus episodes and bonus material over there. You also get a sticker when you sign up. So come and check us out. I'll put a link in the show notes for you guys. All right. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. One.